The following message was preached at Gospel City Church, a church that seeks to cast a gospel net for the people of Kuala Lumpur. Don, all right. Good to see you, everyone here. Uh, my name's Chris. I'm one of the elders here at Gospel City Church, and uh, we're going to continue our study in the letter of Ephesians. So if you have a Bible, open up to Ephesians chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, whether a hard copy or a soft copy, and you would like to follow along with us, which would be great, uh, Sue has copies of the Bible. If you just want to slip your hand up, we'd love to pass you a copy of God's Word. That's a gift from us to you. I was thinking uh, as I stood up, some of my favorite parables and some of my favorite stories in all of the Bible are about how God multiplies things from little to great. Uh, the very first sermon I ever preached was from First Kings, sorry, Second Kings, uh, chapter four, uh, about how the a widow only had a little bit of oil, and God multiplied the oil to fill all of the empty jars that she had, and uh, how He met her needs. And I love the story in the Gospels how Jesus had multitudes that were hungry, and He wanted to feed them. And he took a little bit of fish and a little bit of bread, and miraculously, they multiplied, and he was able to feed people and even had leftovers. And I was thinking about that because, you know, as we sat down at 1045 to begin worship, <laughs> there was just a handful of people in this room. And then as I get up to preach, lo and behold, God has multiplied <laughs> the numbers of people who have gathered. So welcome to all of those who are our regular attenders and covenant partners who know where we're at and made their way here. And those of you who are new and may find it difficult to find where we meet, welcome. I'm glad you found us. I hope that made sense. I, I thought it was funny. All right. Ephesians chapter 6. Uh, this is not the concluding message in our series in Ephesians, but for all intents and purposes, this is Paul's conclusion to the content of his letter. Even though we have a little bit left next week to discuss the, the greetings that, that Paul has, uh, this is really the, the conclusion and the summary of the entire letter. So let's pay careful attention as we read in Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, as for shoes uh, for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the, help, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. 
To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Join me in prayer. Father, we pause in this time of gathered worship to reflect upon the word that we just heard read. And God, we ask you, as we are in the midst of a spiritual battle that sometimes we're not even aware that we are a part of, God, would you help us to see things from your perspective? These cosmic realities help us to understand that we live in this world and that you have equipped us with your strength. You have equipped us with your armor. Would you teach us this morning, Lord, how to live out these truths that we would be able to stand against the enemy, that we would be able to stand as we proclaim your truth. And just as Paul prays that we would speak boldly the gospel that you have given us to proclaim. Lord, we ask you to make us this morning who we are yet to be. We ask you to give us what we do not have, to give us strength and boldness and give us motivation, Father, not for our sake, not that our name would be great, but that you would be exalted and that all peoples would come to know you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. In 1986, a Christian novel was published called This Present Darkness by Frank Peretti. It was his first novel, and it was his attempt to uh, fictionalize this verse in uh, this verse that we read, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It showed his views on angels and demons and prayer and spiritual warfare as demons and angels struggle for control of the citizens of a small rural town. The book captured the imagination of Christians all over the world and launched what was known as the spiritual warfare movement. It's a work of fiction, and yet it did bring some things to light and was helpful for many Christians. There's some problems with the book as well, so don't hear me giving this as a recommendation that you need to run out and buy this book and read it and take everything to heart. <laughs> But there's some things about the book that are helpful, even as a fictional work. The book took seriously the nature and reality of the spiritual battle that we find ourselves in. It takes seriously the necessity and privilege of prayer that Christians have. And it takes seriously our responsibility as followers of Jesus in this spiritual battle. One scholar has noted 
that the phrase spiritual warfare never appears in the Bible. It's a pastoral theological term for describing the conflicts of the Christian life. It's a metaphor for our lifelong struggle with our lies and with other liars, our lusts and other tempters, our sins and other evildoers. The present darkness that exists continually unsettles us. Our sufferings, whatever their form or cause, provide occasions either to stumble or to stand. Our warfare is over which it will be. Will we stumble or will we stand? So as we come to this passage this morning and we consider the fact that as followers of Jesus, we have been called into a spiritual battle, we need to keep a few things in mind related to this spiritual battle, this biblical spiritual warfare, if you will. First, I want you to remember just a few things before we get into this passage that I think will help us frame our minds as we walk through the passage. Number one, uh, biblical spiritual warfare, the spiritual battle that we're in, is a daily reality. It's a daily reality. It's not something that we go in and out of. We live in the midst of a spiritual battle. Whether you want to be engaged or not, you are in it. Biblical spiritual warfare focuses on lifestyle. What we want to talk about this morning is not about techniques so that you can overcome whatever obstacles you face, but we want to focus on what it means to live as a follower of Jesus. And so lifestyle is actually how we live out and how we stand in the midst of this battle. The third part is this, is that as we think about battles and we think about wars, we often think about, you know, aggressing, right? And we want to win, so we have to go on the offensive. And so sometimes we think we have to have weapons and we have to have special tools and, and whatnot. But in the Bible, we go on the offensive in the spiritual battle as we walk with Jesus. That's, that's the thing. We progress. We go on the offensive as we simply walk with Jesus. So therefore, if we're walking with Jesus and we're living according to his words, living and speaking for him in the world is the primary battle strategy. We also need to remember this, that while we do have a foe who is against us, he is a defeated foe. We are engaged in this battle knowing that the enemy is already defeated. So this warfare that we find ourselves in, this battle that we are a part of, it actually becomes an opportunity for us as followers of Jesus to experience his victory and to grow in our relationship with him. We ought not to fear these battles. We ought not to run from them, but rather we embrace Christ as we endure them. We're called to this battle. As I said, we're in it whether we want to be or not. We cannot dodge it. Paul, in this letter, exhorts us as Christians to be strong in the Lord in the midst of the battle. This passage answers for us why, how, and when we must be strong in the Lord. Why, how, and when? 
We see the why in verses 10 through 13. Paul tells us we must be strong in the Lord because of the nature of our enemy. How? He tells us how to be strong in the Lord. In verses 14 through 17, he tells us that we are strong in the Lord when we put on his armor. And then he tells us when. When are we strong in the Lord? Verses 18 through 20 tells us that we are strong in the Lord at all times when we endure in prayer. We can be strong at all times as we endure through prayer. So Paul answers all these questions. And maybe some more questions, but I want to focus on these three this morning. And and I want us to do this not as kind of an addendum to the book of Ephesians, not as a new topic that Paul is addressing in Ephesians, but actually recognizing that this is the culmination. This is the conclusion. This is the summary of everything that Paul's been talking about in Ephesians up to this point. The book of Ephesians is an incredibly cosmological book. Everything in this book, in this letter, is dealing with things that are seen and unseen. I mean, if you go back to the very first verses, right? Paul, an apostle of Jesus, chapter 1, verse 4, of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So even the context of the letter begins with recognizing and understanding that there is something beyond what we see, these heavenly places. And all throughout the letter, he makes references to things that go on that we are not privileged to see at the moment. Paul wants us to know that in the midst of a spiritual battle, of this spiritual battle, we can stand firm and faithful not because of who we are, but because of who God is and what he has done for us in Christ. Let me say that again. It's really important. This is like, you know, later this week, I'll get a WhatsApp message that says, hey, Chris, what's the quote from the message? And I'm always like struggling to think, well, what, what do I want to say? I thought about it this week, and this is what I want to say, right? So God, or Paul, wants us to know that in the midst of a spiritual battle, we can stand firm and faithful, not because of who we are, but because of who God is and what he has done for us in Christ. So let's dive in. We must be strong in the Lord because of the nature of our enemy. Let's look at verses 10 through 13. Let me read those for us again. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Paul begins with finally. Finally, (laughs) he's at the end of his letter. Be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord. Literally, we could translate it from now on, be strengthened in the Lord. This continual, ongoing, 
state of being strong in the Lord. You see, Paul is not calling on Christians to find within themselves some sort of spiritual strength and resolve. He's not saying, now that you know Jesus, it's on you to cultivate strength. No, he's telling us that we are strong in the Lord. And this strength that Paul is alluding to is strength and power that is the same power of God that raised Jesus from the dead. It exalted him to the place of honor above every name. That's the strength of the Lord. There is, in my estimation, no no power stronger than than that to raise the dead. You say, well, God didn't God create everything? Yeah, he did. That's pretty powerful, and I'm not disputing that. But the idea that he rose someone from the dead, that's incredible power. You see, God, the Lord, he is strong, and we are called to be strong in him. We put on his armor, right? Put on the whole armor of God. This idea that God has armor. It's an interesting picture, isn't it? And it's built on Old Testament imagery. In the Old Testament, we're told that the Lord is a warrior. I don't know if you guys know a lot of you know, Christian music written in the last several years, but there's a song that just always pops in my mind when I think about this by a guy named Matt Papa, The Lord is a Warrior. And, and uh, he's got a section in there where I forget who it is, but somebody... Shailen, yeah, he raps, you know, about, you know, how the Lord comes strong and mighty. And uh, it's really cool. So go on Spotify or wherever and look up Matt Papa, the Lord is a warrior. Put it on your playlist this week. It's awesome. Uh, We're told in the Old Testament that the Lord is a warrior. Exodus 15 verse 3 tells us the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Isaiah 42, 13 tells us. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. The Lord is a warrior. If the Lord is a warrior, then it makes sense for us to put on his armor. The armor belongs to him. He provides his armor to us. The description that we will see in the following verses of his armor, is armor that his chosen one puts on in the Old Testament, his chosen one being the Messiah. We see that in the book of Isaiah, specifically chapter 11, verse 5, or chapter 52, verse 7, and chapter 59, verse 19. And this armor stands at the center of Paul's imagery throughout this passage. We must recognize that this armor is the Lord's armor. It's not our armor. It's not the armor of a centurion that would be standing guard over Paul as he's imprisoned writing this letter. No, no, this is saturated with imagery from the Old Testament. It's also important for us to remember that this power, this strength that we receive from the Lord is not borrowed. It's his power. It's it's not power that he gives us for a little while and then drains out. No, it's not power that we have to learn to cultivate. No, it is his power. It's not our power. It never will be our power. It's his power 
I, I think about, you know, we all have cell phones now, and, and one of the things that we all recognized once we got these handphones, these smartphones, is that batteries don't last forever. So, you know, we have to plug them in and charge the batteries. And after a while, we realized, well, we're not always somewhere where we can plug in and charge. So some genius created external battery packs so that we can plug a, a phone into this external battery pack so that when it runs out of energy, it can drain the energy from the battery. But then when the battery drains, well, it has to go get plugged in and be recharged. And so we have this idea always of strength and power having to be recharged all the time. Paul's not talking about being strong in the Lord in the sense that we have to go to him and get recharged to go back into the world. Now, you see, Jesus promised that he is with us. As we go, as we engage in his mission, he is with us. And so the power, the strength that we draw from, it is with us always because he is the power. He is the strength. So it's not power that we have to like charge up in ourselves and then go and expend that energy and then go get recharged. No, we walk with him. He walks with us. If we're not connected to him, then we are not operating in his power. We must live in this truth that we are no longer under the tyrannical rule of the prince of the power of the air, but rather we are under the loving headship of Jesus. So we can conclude that with this idea that we must put on his armor, it's the way that we can talk about our identification with God and his purposes. As we put on his armor, we are putting on Christ. We are putting on the new self as we put off the old self. Sound familiar? Sounds like Ephesians chapter 4, doesn't it? Well, we must be strong because of the nature of the enemy. And here Paul talks a little bit about the enemy and how the enemy is a schemer. One of my mentors put it this way about the enemy. He says that the devil wants you to shut up, give up, puff up, or mess up. He wants you to shut up, give up, puff up, or mess up. He wants you to shut up. The enemy doesn't want you talking about Jesus. He doesn't want you talking about the grace of God, the goodness of God, the kindness of God towards us in Christ. He doesn't want us talking about those things. He wants us to shut up. He wants us to give up. He wants us to become discouraged in our walk with the Lord. He wants us to become discouraged with the things of the world and all of the obstacles against us. He just wants us to give up. He wants us to get puffed up. He wants us to become boastful and prideful of all the things that we accomplish and to begin to think that we have done these things on our own and we take credit for it and we do not give credit where credit is due. He wants us to mess up. He wants us to engage in some sort of sin, some behavior that is embarrassing and that we don't want to acknowledge and that we want to hide and that will erode our ability to be a witness for Jesus in the world. He wants you to shut up, to give up, to be puffed up or messed up. How does he do that? He comes to you and he, he tempts you and he taunts you. He terrifies you. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, Paul says, but against the rulers, 
against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It's not just against one demon or one demonic person that we often refer to as the devil, but no, it is against a host of evil forces that are opposed to the kingdom of light. We ought not to be so fascinated with these spirits and evil demons and and things that we become fascinated and, and transfixed by them, but rather we should know something about them. We should know how the enemy works against us. I think if you are in sports, if you're an athlete, you know how important it is to study the film and know the tendencies of your opponent. You know how they want to attack. You know how they want to defend. You know how they want to defeat you. And you can learn something from studying your opponent. But ultimately, in studying your opponent, your opponent, it doesn't matter how well you know your opponent if you don't self-scout, if you don't know what you need and how you need to live and how you need to perform. You see, as the enemy wrestles against us, we need to remember that we wrestle against the enemy. It's the image of a grappling match. As you are in close combat. And the truth of the matter is, if we are not strong in the Lord, if we do not have on his armor, we will lose. We will lose. But here we are being told that if we're strong in the Lord, we can stand. We can withstand the enemy. We can stand firm against him. This is not the first time Paul has talked about the enemy. I mean, according to uh, chapter 4, verse 27, we're told that we are to give no opportunity to the devil. You see, in this, we are told in verse 26 that Satan tries to gain a foothold in our lives. He wants to influence us through things like uncontrolled anger, as well as falsehood or stealing or unwholesome talk. Indeed, any conduct that is characteristic of the old way of life, the old self, the old person. Further, you see, the evil one is committed to hindering the progress of the gospel. He will attempt by any way possible to turn believers aside from pursuing the cause of Christ and achieving God's goal of getting the gospel to the nations. We should know his schemes, but we ought not to be too fascinated with him. The enemy is not the object of our devotion. C.S. Lewis, in his preamble to the Screwtape Letters in 1962, wrote this, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a a materialist or a magician with the same delight. So we ought not to be 
too extreme, but we need to know there is an enemy. And we need to remember that this battle is unseen. It's unseen. We're not wrestling against flesh and blood. The, the battle is spiritual. Our enemy, he's unseen. We don't see him. Now, there certainly are those who are a part of his kingdom who are captive to him. We sang about that this morning. He is the captor, and others are the captives, but we do not wrestle against the captives of the evil one. No, we wrestle against him, against those spiritual forces. You see, those who are captive, they need to be rescued from the kingdom of darkness. Notice also in this passage, as we recognize this unseen battle, Paul never tells us to win. He doesn't tell us that we have to win. Because you see, the victory is already won. We don't have to win because the victory is already won. So we can stand firm in this victory that's already been won by Christ. Those of you who are followers of Jesus, you know something about this unseen battle, don't you? I mean, you can be having this great day in the Lord. You could have started off your day with a wonderful devotion, reading in the scripture, and praying through your prayer list, and maybe you're driving to work, and you're, you have some praise music on, and you're singing, and then all of a sudden, there's a whisper that comes into your ear that is some unspeakable thought, and you can't even understand, why in the world would I think that? Where did that thought come from? Well, we know where it comes from. It comes from the evil one. It's an unseen battle. These things are real, and we know something about them. So we know that we must be strong in the Lord because of the nature of our enemy, but how? How is it that we can be strong in the Lord? Well, we can be strong in the Lord when we put on his armor. As I mentioned already, Paul said in uh, chapter 4, verses 22 through 24, he tells us to put off our old selves and put on our new self in Christ. In that passage, putting on God's armor is used in a different image of putting on the new self. We are new in Christ, and we are to put on his identity, which here in chapter 6 is his armor. I found it really helpful uh, reading uh, a scholar named David Paulson, who has this to say about the weaponry. He says, when we examine each individual piece of weaponry here in verses uh, 14 through 17, it's clear that Paul did not dream up his metaphor by noticing the outfit worn by Roman soldiers. He had been pondering on Isaiah and the Psalms in the light of Christ. When Paul lists these individual implements, the soldier, we are to imagine, is not Roman, but divine and messianic. We are to imagine the Lord God in person. The Lord is a warrior. So let's look at these, these pieces of armor as we go through them. We begin in verse 14. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. The emphasis here is on truth. Paul took this from Isaiah chapter 11, verse 5, that says, 
Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. This taking on truth describes a man characterized by truth and faithfulness. In Isaiah 11, Isaiah portrays the Messiah arising from the Davidic lineage. He is filled with the Spirit beyond measure. He invades the earth, bringing justice and mercy. He seeks to destroy the godless. He is on the offense. He's not playing defense. And people from the whole earth should seek him. Isaiah's theme in chapter 11 is the same as the theme of the book of Ephesians. And we recognize Jesus in it. But not only in Isaiah, but think about what Paul has said so far about the truth in the book of Ephesians. In chapter 1, verse 13, we're told you've heard the word of truth. In chapter 4, verse 15, we're told to speak the truth in love. In chapter 4, verse 21, we're told that the truth is in Jesus. In chapter 4, verse 25, we're told, Therefore, putting away all falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth to his neighbor, for we are members one of another. And then in chapter 5, verse 9, we're told that the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Truth has been a major theme throughout the entire book of Ephesians. And here, Paul is summarizing that by telling us to put on the belt of truth, that we are to be a truthful people, not just saying things that are true, but recognizing him who is the truth, Jesus Christ. And so the things that we speak that are true are the things of Christ. We can't be silent about Jesus and be truth tellers. We must speak about Jesus. Not only do we speak truth, but we must trust truth. We trust the word of God. The word of God is true. It endures forever. We live out truth by practicing honesty and integrity in all of our relationships. How do you know if you're a truth teller? How do you know if you're wearing the belt of truth? Well, are you truthful? Are you trustworthy? Do people know that you will speak truth to them in love? Do you live according to the truth of the word of God? Do you find yourself secure in the truths of Scripture? That's a way to evaluate, am I wearing the belt of truth? How about the breastplate of righteousness? What does he tell us here in verse 14? Having put on the breastplate of righteousness. We stand, therefore, by putting on this breastplate. Another image that comes from Isaiah, chapter 59, verse 17. And in this passage, you have the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation. Isaiah says he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Who arms himself in this way? Isaiah makes it clear that it is the Lord God 
who arms himself in this way. He alone can make right everything that is wrong. The whole earth, including God's people, are in darkness. We are surrounded by darkness in this world. No one here can fix it. Only God can fix it. So, in Isaiah, the Lord comes in wrath and in mercy. He pours out His Spirit. He preaches His words on those who will turn from transgression. Again, in Isaiah, this is a picture of the coming of the Lord Jesus. Only when we take this passage out of its context do we begin to think about military hardware. No, no, this is, this is something that is about Jesus. Well, how do we know if we're wearing the breastplate of righteousness? How do we know that? How do we, how do we think about it? Well, in the book of Ephesians, Paul presents it in this way. In chapter 4, verse 24, he tells us to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. It's putting on the new self, turning from the old ways, embracing the new. In chapter 5, verse 9, we're told that the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right. So, are you grateful for the righteousness that God has given to us? It's not our righteousness. We don't determine what's right. God determines what's right. And are we grateful for it? Do we receive the things that he says is right? And do we reject the things that he says are wrong? Do we live a life devoted to right thinking and right behavior? Do we make choices that imitate God in choosing right? How do you know if you do that? Well, when you're tempted, what do you choose? When you're tempted between an evil choice or a righteous choice, or anything less than righteous? You may say, well, it's not evil, but it's not righteous. Well, it's evil. I know it's kind of strange to say this, but it is a binary option. In the world today, people want to talk about things not being binary. It's binary. It's either righteous or it's not. And if it's not righteous, guess what that is? Evil. It's evil. So when you're tempted... Do you make the God-honoring right choices? Does your daily life reflect righteousness? Do brothers and sisters in Christ see you and see your choices and the way that you live and recognize that person is walking with Christ? Well, we move on to the shoes. For uh, We put on shoes for our feet which is the readiness given by the gospel of peace. This also comes from Isaiah. And it's not the only time Paul uses this image. He uses it in the book of Romans as well. Isaiah says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. That's Isaiah 52, 7. It's also Romans chapter 10. Forget the verses. 8, 9, and 10? No. 11, 12, 13? I forget. It's in there. It's in Romans 10. Go read it this afternoon. 
Isaiah chapter 52 makes clear that this is the Lord. Every eye sees the Lord returning to Zion. They bring comfort and redemption. Who is it that does this? We learn in chapter 53 of Isaiah that it is the Lamb of God who bears the iniquity of us all. How wide is the scope of the salvation that he brings, that we are to proclaim, that brings peace with God? The ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Again, this is the same emphasis in the book of Ephesians. We are to bring the good news of Jesus, the peace that he brings, because he is the good news. Consider verse 1, chapter 2, uh, sorry, chapter 1, verse 2 of Ephesians. Grace and peace to you from God. Peace can only be given to us through Christ. Chapter 1, verse 13, we're told that the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, we are told that Jesus is our peace, that he makes peace, that he came and preached peace to those of us who were far off and peace to those who were near. In chapter 3, verse 6, we're told that all partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus are partakers through the gospel, the good news. In chapter 4, verse 3, we're told that we are to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, the peace that is brought by the gospel. We are to stand firm in this gospel. We stand firm in the gospel because it teaches us who we are. It announces to us what Christ has done for us and the invitation to receive him and to stand in him, to be made new in him. And in receiving that, we don't just receive it and sit and twiddle our thumbs. No, we receive it and we announce it. We proclaim this goodness. And the idea of putting on shoes for our feet, that we are ready to proclaim the gospel? Are we willing to go where God calls us to go? To talk to the people that he wants us to talk to? For some of you, that may mean going across the globe, getting a passport and going to a different country and a different people. For some of you, it may simply mean crossing the street or going to a coworker in the next cubicle or any other ways that you can proclaim the truth of Jesus, this gospel of peace. And we do it even in the midst of spiritual battles. Even as the enemy would seek to shut us up, we put on his armor and we, can, we continue on. How do we evaluate if we're doing this? Well, a simple question. Do I use the opportunities that I have day to day to tell others about Jesus and their need to submit to him as Lord. Do you? Now, I'm not stealing anyone's thunder, but perhaps you may be sitting here this morning and saying, I really struggle with that. I got good news for you. Next week, you're going to hear an announcement about a new evangelism strategy that we're going to embrace here at Gospel City Church. And so, Come back next week. This is the cliffhanger for next week about how we're, we're going to engage in this. Uh, some of you are, you're veteran evangelists. You love sharing the gospel. 
you know how to, and you are active. And some of you say, I want to be, but I really struggle. I don't know what to say. I don't know how to go about it. So starting next week, you're going to hear some announcements, and we're going to start to uh, present a way that we as a church can partner together in doing evangelism, proclaiming the gospel of peace. Faith. We're told to take up the shield of faith with which we can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. You know those whispers I mentioned earlier that you hear? Those are the darts. Those are some darts that Satan is throwing your way. He wants to tempt you. He wants to taunt you. He wants to cause you to fall. The image of taking up the shield of faith does not come from Isaiah. And it's in this section, the only image that relates to a defensive or protective role. You see, this shield repels these flaming darts. And we see this oftentimes in the book of Psalms, where we see that the Lord is called our shield or our strength. He is called our refuge. As we express our faith in him, we take refuge in him from our enemies. For example, Psalm 18, verses 1 through 3, tells us, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. I call upon the Lord, who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. Notice the themes. Strength, shield, salvation, prayer, enemies. These are the words of Ephesians 6 made flesh. This psalm catches faith in the act of looking with confidence to the one who strengthens and shields. Notice, the Lord is our shield. Faith has no protective power in and of itself. Faith seeks out and finds our protector. So you may struggle with this idea that, oh, I don't have much faith. You don't have to have much faith. No one's asking you to have great faith. We're simply asking you to place faith in the one who protects and shields and guards and saves. He is our shield. We don't have to manufacture a shield. Think about what Paul has said in Ephesians so far about faith. Chapter 1, verse 15, he says, For this reason I have heard, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints. Chapter 2, verse 8, he says, By grace you have been saved through faith. Chapter 3, verse 12, he tells us that we have boldness in him and access with confidence through our faith in him so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That's chapter 3, verse 17. Chapter 4, verse 5, we're told that we all possess one faith. And in chapter 4, verse 13, we are told about the unity of our faith. So how do we exercise this faith? We must know God's promises. We must trust God to keep his promises. And we act in accordance that we are sure that he will keep his promises. So are you willing to obey whatever God has called you to do, 
in the word of God, despite the opposition you may face? Are you willing, despite the difficulty, or perhaps even the consequences, in this kingdom of darkness that we find ourselves in? Are you willing to obey? The helmet of salvation, we discussed a little bit when we talked about the breastplate of righteousness. So think about this. Think about in the book of Ephesians how Paul has presented salvation. In chapter 1, verse 13, he tells us that the word of truth is the gospel of our salvation. Chapter 2, verse 5, we're told that by grace we have been saved. Chapter 2, verse 8, we're, once again, for by grace you have been saved. Chapter 5, verse 23, we're told that Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. So, today, do you know God through Jesus Christ, who is your Savior? Have you trusted in him? Have you trusted in the work that he accomplished on the cross in taking all God's wrath against sin and received the gift that he provides of his righteousness, of his forgiveness, of his goodness? Have you received him as Savior? Do you think about your life now in terms of being saved, of being one who belongs to Christ? Do you hope in Christ at all times? Is God honored in your life as you trust in him? We get to the word of God. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Paul is here ending his imagery of weapons. And rather than quoting Isaiah, he alludes to Isaiah. In Isaiah 11.4, he says, With righteousness, God shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Chapter 49, verse 2 says, He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver he hid me. This sword expresses the wisdom of God's Spirit to destroy evil and bring in the peaceable kingdom. This sword identifies a man whom the Lord calls by name from his mother's womb, who will be glorified. His life will apparently come to nothing, but when he is despised and rejected by his own people, His life will apparently come to nothing when it is despised and rejected by his own people. But in the end, he will be their redeemer and a light to the nations. Again, in Isaiah, we know that he's speaking of the Lord Jesus. Paul tells us in chapter 5, verse 26, that the Lord Jesus will sanctify his bride, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Do you know God's word? Do you love it? Do you study it? Do you read it? Do you listen to it? Do you memorize it? Do you meditate upon it? Do you treasure it? When it comes to engaging with others, do you teach his word or use it as the basis of your counsel? Is it his word that you proclaim? 
Well, that's the armor. That's how we are strong in the Lord. When are we to be strong in the Lord? We're to be strong in the Lord at all times. And we remain strong in the Lord by enduring in prayer. Notice how Paul starts in verse 18, pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. We move on in this warfare imagery, but we are not talking about armor anymore. We're talking about prayer. And prayer is this activity of the believer that binds everything together. In chapter 6, verse 10, Paul says, Be strengthened in the Lord. Now he calls us to pray, not just that we will be strengthened, but that others will be strengthened as well. Our need leads us to consider the needs of our brothers and sisters, just as Jesus prayed in John 17. In John 17, Jesus interceded for his disciples that the Father would keep them from evil, from the evil one, and sanctify us to himself. In John 17, Jesus shows us how to pray to deliver us from evil, that we might become one in God's love. So as you pray, as Paul here requests prayer, we pray with all prayer and supplication. We keep alert with perseverance. We make supplication for all the saints. So this morning, as Becca prayed, she prayed, and we joined her in prayer for praying for churches in Bangsar. Why in the world would we pray for other churches? Because we're brothers and sisters in Christ, and they need to be strengthened in the gospel. So we intercede for others. We don't just pray for ourselves. We are aware of the needs of others, and we pray for those things. Even within our own church body, are you aware of the needs of others and how you can pray for them? I'll give you a good example. I'll just throw one out. Uh, The next two weeks, if you think about me and my family, pray for me. I'm going to be a single dad as Rebecca travels to the U.S. (laughs) Rebecca travels to the U.S. to, to help out Lydia and Thad and get them settled at university. Uh, I've got Naomi and Josiah and Evangeline and pray for us. Maybe pray for them. (laughs) But there's many people in our church who are in some challenging times, whether it's work situations, whether it's family situations, health, uh, whether it's a desire to see a dear friend come to know Jesus. Are you aware of how you can be praying for those who are seated in this room? Be informed in your prayers. And specifically, Paul tells us to pray for opportunities to share. As someone who is a prisoner, he's in chains because of his ministry of proclamation. He still says, pray for me that I might have the boldness to to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Are we praying that we would be bold? We need to pray for believers to proclaim the gospel boldly. I'm fully aware that I've spent a lot of time in this passage. And Monday night, uh, I was told in our preacher's meeting that Kyle preached you know, really short last week. And so I gladly take whatever leftover time he had from last week to use the time today. But this is, this is how Paul is ending this letter. 
this significant and important letter that as a church we have spent a significant amount of time studying. We, we've spent time in all kinds of different books in the Bible and going through them pretty rapidly. I mean, we went through Genesis. I mean, I know we took breaks, but we went through Genesis pretty fast. I mean, if we had diced Genesis up into the small segments like we've diced up Ephesians, um, we never would get out of Genesis. <laughs> and Dr. Esri is grateful for that. <laughs> so we've taken a significant amount of time to drill down into the book of Ephesians to learn from it because it is very informative, especially for us who find ourselves in a city that is incredibly diverse, incredibly diverse, that is being influenced from so many different places, spiritually speaking, backgrounds. And we know that the enemy, we know that the enemy is working here. We know that the kingdom of darkness is here. We know that the enemy wants to keep Christians quiet. He doesn't want us to live as though we have been armored by God, that we have his armor, that we have his strength. Now, I'm not saying that we have to go out and do silly things. Like, I know some of you gamers, like, you might be thinking, Leroy Jenkins, right? Some of you know what that is. Some of you have no idea what I just said. Some of you know exactly what I'm saying. And God's not calling us to be a Leroy Jenkins. <laughs> I got Joshua. That's fantastic. <laughs> it's, a, it's a video game thing where some dude goes off on his own, and it's dumb. But it's for gamers. It's not for you. God's not calling us to do that. He's calling us to do this as a body. He's calling us to do it as a church, as brothers and sisters who put on the armor together, who encourage one another, who pray for one another, who exhort one another to carry on. And when one of us falls or one of us struggles, we come alongside and we encourage and we help and we minister and we share. And we do that because we are strong in the Lord. We're not strong in ourselves. We're strong in the Lord. He works through us. That's his choice. He has chosen to work through us by providing us his armor. My mentor has summarized the passage uh, or the message of Ephesians chapter 6 this way. Theologically and positionally, our victory is secure in Christ. Practically, this spiritual battle continues. Therefore, we must prepare for and fight the spiritual battle by putting on and living out the armor of God. We know we're in a battle. We put on the armor. We stand firm against the enemy. And at all times, we pray. Oftentimes, in reading this passage and trying to apply it, we rush past the fact that it is the Lord God himself who empowers us and uses us as his weapons. 
He equips us in order to work through us. So, we find ourselves in a battle, and we may not have asked to be a part of this battle. We may feel like pacifists in some way, and we just don't want to fight, but too bad. We're in a battle. We are. So, we must put on his armor in order to stand firm in this war. To win this spiritual battle, we must simply, isn't that strange that in war there's something that's simple? Here's the simple thing. We must live as light in a dark world. We are to treat others with humility and patience, with thoughtful consideration, with grace and truth. It's to live in this world as a conscious and contributing member of God's people. And these are people that God has brought together by his great mercy. You cannot engage or win or experience the victory alone. You can't do it. And so that's one reason that at Gospel City Church, we make such a big deal about covenant partnership, about being a member, because we want to do this together. We know that we cannot engage in the battle together. So some of you have submitted applications for membership. Praise God, we're going to keep going with that. Some of you have said that you want to, and we haven't gotten the paperwork yet, so we're still praying for you. We've talked to some of you who are still on the fence, and we're waiting. And we don't do it because we want to have control over anybody's life, but because we recognize the significance and the importance of what it means to be one in the body and being a member of a church or a covenant partner here at GCC is how we express that, that we are going to fight together in this war, that we are committed to one another in this battle. God has brought us together by his mercy. We are to have, or we are to spend time saying the things that are worth saying. Saying the things that are true, pointing to the one who is true. Saying things that are constructive and timely and filled with grace. It is to live purposefully, proactively in this world as we are distracted in so many different ways that we come back to focus on who we worship and who we exalt. It is together to seek God's grace. At its core, to experience the victory in this war that God has guaranteed for us, it is to know him and to serve him. To know him and to serve him. As my mentor says, that we ought to know and speak for Christ in such a way that an already defeated Satan is threatened and that God is glorified. May we engage in this battle according to God's strength, not our own. Join me in prayer. Father, may the words of this message ring true in our ears and move us to action, to trust you, 
and to live for you boldly in this world and to speak of you in such a way that you're honored and that others are drawn to you. In Christ's name we pray. Thank you for listening to this message. We invite you to learn more about Gospel City Church at gospelcitychurch.my.